0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church podcast. The following teaching is our final entry in the series, Uncompromising Orthodoxy. If orthodox is something that a person may or may not be, then how does one become orthodox? And how do you stay that way? Ours is an age of digital activism. And why not? The digital world is the world we know. For many, if not most Americans and and many people around the world, entertainment and finances and even foes socializing all unfold behind the mysterious glowing glass of a screen, like this one. With a device that fits in your hand, you can read about geopolitical conflict overseas, reimburse a friend for a cup of coffee, track celebrities, watch a movie. If you hate movies, anyway, you can do it that way do your taxes <laughs> you can live stream your brunch do you know that levi he does it all the time i'm going to watch it he does it all the time and then he's the only one watching it right now yeah. and you can let the world know what you think about stuff and depending on who you ask letting the digital world know what you claim to think about stuff could be just as important as you know, actually doing stuff. Did you tell the digital world that you got vaccinated? If not, did you really get vaccinated at all? It's like a tree falling in the woods. Are you, if you didn't say so, anti-vax or anti-science? Where's your vaccination picture? Are you a right wing QAnon white nationalist? Silence, the social media world argues, is violence, which really takes the edge off of real life violence, I think. But what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine the, uh, the morning news? I don't like the news. I've, I've said this before, but every now and then the local news is playing in our you know, bedroom in the morning. It's kind of a soothing ambiance to me, or at least it used to be. Um, but I just like to imagine, you know, there has been yet another shooting today, and in related and completely comparable news, someone did not tweet. <laughs> Same exact thing. And here's where things get really dicey. See, uh, there's this Catholic philosopher called Michael Novak, and he argued that there's actually three different levels of belief. First, there's public belief, and public belief is what we say we believe. That's the image that we project. It's what I, your jaded and cynical pastor, tends to believe is the uh, usually disingenuous image that one curates for a social media feed. That's public belief. But then there's private belief. Now, private belief is what we think we believe until life somehow puts it to the test. And then it may or may not be what we actually believe. So here's an example. Over the years, I've done a lot of talking about Christian nonviolence. It's something I feel strongly about. So I've written about it, I've preached and lectured about it, you name it. And the pushback one usually gets when they go on about nonviolence is well, what if you are actually in a violent situation one day? Now, I believe that I believe in nonviolence, but honestly, I've had no real or pressing opportunities to put my belief to the test. I hope I never will, but we'll see. So there's public and private belief, and then there's core belief. And core belief is what we actually believe. And that's the kind of belief with which your life, your actions are congruent. If your core belief is, for example, that fire will burn you, then you avoid being set on fire. You believe, not just abstractly or intellectually, that fire burns and so you behave accordingly. If your core belief is that food nourishes you and you need it to live and then you eat food to be nourished, you need no convincing of these things intellectually. You just believe it. But then there's a disconnect. So if you say, for example, that you believe in the abolishing of slavery, but then you continue to shop at H&M and Nike, then it's probably more like something you say you believe, but when it comes down to it, you don't. Not really, anyway. If I go on and on about nonviolence, but then, God forbid, I wind up in some violent situation and I beat a bunch of people up, which I could totally do, (laughs) then maybe it was only something that I thought I believed until life put it to the test. And here's where I'm going with all this. I am admittedly cynical about social media, and I don't use it myself, but I'm pretty convinced that social media activism is mostly public belief. And I'm not a clinical psychologist or anything. Surprise, I know. But there are all kinds of reasons that I think so. First, I've yet to meet a person whose real-life persona and their voice and their personality actually synchronizes with their social media persona. Usually, the disparity is pretty significant. Second, I have known many, many people who get up in arms about this or that cause on social media, but whose actual lives and actions are completely inconsistent with the philosophy around which they rally. But lastly, and and most importantly, it's really easy to speak your mind when you know your audience will love you for it. It's really, really easy to speak up when the only people that you'll offend are the people that you want to offend. Social media can create a deep sense of tribalism, the group identity built around what we are against. And since no one has to use social media, and if they do, no one has to follow a given person, the experience often becomes an insular echo chamber a bubble to reinforce what we already want to believe and to protect us from what we don't want to believe with the powerful weapons of ridicule and public shame. And with just a few clicks, you get to be a hero. You can even out-hero other heroes or call their heroism into question if they didn't hero the right way. It's all about claiming the right belief with the right fervor and stomping out anything that does not get in line. Is that what we do? Christians, I mean. Some would certainly say so. Is that where doctrine leads? Is that what doctrine is? Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4 in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Tonight, we are concluding an ongoing series all about something called orthodoxy or right belief see, Christianity has been going on now for more than 2,000 years, so a decent little stretch, and something that began as a grassroots movement amongst a small persecuted minority has, just like Jesus said it would, become this global movement reaching out across the entire world, all sorts of different histories and cultures and ethnicities, everyone committed to the same way of life. Or are they? Orthodoxy is how you answer that question. It is the guide rails, the foundation. So that those core declarations of belief that make Christianity unique remain undiluted and uncompromised. It's not about exclusivity or shutting people out if they don't have the perfect ideas, the perfect belief. It's really for all the same reasons that you'd have a problem if someone showed up for a basketball game in hockey gear carrying a tennis ball. You'd have to say, oh, well, that's not going to work. That's not what we're here for. That's not what we're doing. And the guarding of doctrine and orthodoxy are by no means a modern invention of paranoid evangelicals or culture wars. Much of the New Testament is dedicated to these ideas. So let's look at one passage in particular from Paul's second letter to his protege named Timothy. Now, Paul, in context... Here's the backstory. Paul's a master princess of Jesus who spent years traveling around the ancient world, spreading the story of Jesus' kingship, planting new churches, preaching the gospel, growing the Jesus movement across the ancient Mediterranean. And Paul, in his journeys, encountered an interesting cast of characters, and some of them became his trusted co-workers in the movement. One in particular was a young man called Timothy, and he was mentored by Paul for years before Paul began to send Timothy himself out on missions all by himself. And 2 Timothy is actually Paul's final and most personal letter. He wrote it while he was in prison in Rome, awaiting, we think, execution. So Paul has come to the point where he wants to pass on his church planting mission to the young man that he has mentored, Timothy. So what will Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, who partnered with the Spirit of God to grow the Jesus movement throughout the ancient world, say to this young man who is taking up his mantle officially. The letter is actually divided into two basic sections. From the opening verse to early on in chapter, around chapter two, it's basically Paul calling on Timothy to accept this divine appointment, to carry the Jesus movement forward. He reminds Timothy that the way of Jesus is bigger than either of them, that the road ahead will not be easy, but that God has opened up a new reality and that the world itself will never be the same. And then early in chapter two, Paul switches gears and the rest of the letter is dedicated to confronting false teaching and guarding what we call orthodoxy. See, Timothy, we think, was on assignment in a city called Ephesus at the time, dealing with a group of false teachers who had infiltrated this fledgling church and spreading corrupting heresies or false teachings, leading new Christians astray. And characteristic of Paul's writing, what he scribed one winter to a young protege continues to have this incredible sweeping ramification for you and I centuries later on the other side of the world. So with all that in the back of your head, would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence for the reading of Scripture? Let's read from 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, In the presence of God... I've been thinking about this passage a lot for uh, the last couple of years, actually. It's incredible to me how Paul's words sound as if they could have been written today. And it's both encouraging and discouraging that this particular issue is thousands of years old. But notice a few things about the passage. First, the context in which Paul appeals to Timothy, the basis or the foundation of his appeal, is this. Look at verse 1 again. In the presence of God... And of Christ or Messiah Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. So the foundation, the basis is Jesus, the kingdom, the judge of all things. And what's the charge? Verse 2. First, preach the word. The word here refers to simply the truth of God. So that can mean the scriptures or the Bible. It can mean Jesus himself. Or it could just mean anything that God has spoken or decreed as truth. That, all of that is the word of God. And he goes on. Be prepared in season and out of season. There's no specific time of spiritual attunement over another time. Always follow Jesus. Always be prepared to do the work of the kingdom. And finally, correct Rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So Timothy is supposed to correct and rebuke false teaching, which is what he's doing right now in Ephesus as he's reading this letter. That's heresy, bad doctrine, lies. But don't stop there. That's not the only thing. This is about encourage, build up, and do all of that with patience and care. Now, there are all sorts of ugly examples throughout church history of those who were dedicated to correction and rebuke but who seem to overlook the other stuff, patience, care, encouragement. And sure, Paul is writing to Timothy, who was already a leader in the church and who was accepting a divine calling to, in some ways, take on the mantle of the Apostle Paul. So it's one leader to another leader. Um, They're trading inside baseball about about a specific issue with dangerous false teachers in the church in Ephesus. So it's church leader talk Read in a certain way, it feels less like it has anything specific to say to most of us in the room. It feels more voyeuristic, like you're reading someone else's mail, because most of us aren't taking on the mantle of a church planting mission, or we're not key leaders in some church movement. But what's interesting here is that by the time you get to verse 3, Paul's focus is on neither the false teachers nor the leaders, but on the people of the church. And that is most of you guys. And he writes this, The time will come when people, the people who belong to the church, the Christian movement, will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Paul is saying, listen, no matter what, continue to teach the truth, to teach orthodoxy, rebuke false doctrine, but don't be surprised if there are people who won't have it. One scholar I read this week put it this way. He said, Timothy is to carry on Paul's ministry in a world where there is no promise of eager response. It's really easy to speak your mind when you know your audience will love you for it. And it's really, really easy to speak up when the only people you'll offend are the people you want to offend. That same scholar went on to say the errorists or the false teachers and their followers have simply abandoned truth for a lie. And there is no promise to Timothy that things will get better after Paul's death. So here's a question I've been turning over in my head for a while now. What does it mean to embrace the truth? All of us are on the swinging pendulum. Culture undulates, as do cultural ideologies. They go this way, and then they go back the other way. And there are cultural narratives, stories, about what it means to be human that prevail in society. And then some movement rises up to challenge them, a counterculture. In the 50s, it was beatniks, apparently. Then in the 60s, you got the hippies, and then in the 70s, it was punks. And you know, the culture gets subcultures, and eventually they tend to get pulled, kicking and screaming into mainstream consciousness until it gets watered down and domesticated. And you end up with stuff like this. For just, I don't know, how much does it cost? $18, you can get yourself a nice, soft Misfits purple sweater <laughs> from Target. But my point is this, the question. What does it mean to really embrace the truth? A while back, um, I was invited to be a guest on someone else's podcast. I don't know if you guys have heard of these things, podcasts. I really think they're going to catch on. Um, Really bright future for podcasts. I can feel it. Anyway, I'm on this podcast and we get to talking about music and philosophy and art and uh, the concept of punk rock. Now, I wasn't alive in the 70s and by the time I got to punk rock, it was already past its prime, but... That didn't stop me from identifying with it philosophically. So this guy on the podcast, he asked me if I had a working definition of punk. And I told him, I think that it is an approach to art and to life that runs deliberately contrary to the status quo. That's what I think anyway, and that's why I liked it as a young man and as an adult. Now, that was a couple of years ago. Fast forward to this past week, I get a call from a dude in a band that I toured with more than a decade ago. I haven't spoken to him since then, on the phone or in person. Um, But I always liked this guy, And I had maybe sent two or three text messages back and forth over the last 10 years. And he called me because he heard through the internet or some other thing that I'd become a pastor. And lo and behold, he had become a pastor as well, which is saying something because the vast majority of folks that I'd known to be Christians back in my touring musician days have long since denounced the way of Jesus. Not this dude, still a Christian, now a pastor, and in Florida, no less. Now, I don't have to tell you, Florida has enjoyed more than its fair share of bad press these last few years, but there's this old friend of mine trying to follow Jesus out there in Florida, and as we're catching up, it dawned on me that neither uh, my beliefs nor my theology have changed in any radical way since we last spoke, but this guy only knew me when I lived in and was reacting to the culture of my upbringing, which was rural Georgia, the deep south. And I was particularly preoccupied with the things that bothered me about the uh, church culture down there. There was Christian nationalism and military violence and right-wing fundamentalism and political idolatry, all part and parcel of life in the South, and all, I, I believe personally, antithetical to the way of Jesus. And knowing me then, he said to me, man, it seems like a lot of the stuff that you care about would be a really easy sell to people in the Pacific Northwest. And I thought, yeah, sure. But being here these last 10 years and more now, I guess, I am more up in arms about fidelity to orthodoxy, the authority of Jesus and the scriptures and commitment to the church. Because part of me, for better or for worse, in many cases worse, part of me has always wanted to find the prevailing notions taken for granted by people and culture and push back or punch holes or subvert And because God is so patient and so gracious, He can and has used this to do some good things. But because I am so broken, I have often used it to suit my own selfish inclinations. It may be easy to speak your mind when you know your audience will love you for it, but it's also very easy to offend when your brokenness enjoys offending. But the truth, I'm convinced, doesn't care about our own petty distortions and exploitations of it. The truth is simply true. That is why one reason among many that I am committed to the way of Jesus is that I cannot seem to make him bend his truth to suit my sensibilities. I cannot seem to make Jesus approve of everything for which I want approval, nor sanction my every desire. He will not allow me to slip comfortably into or out of the camps and tribes that I love or hate. In his latest And most controversial stand-up special comedian Dave Chappelle said that one of the hardest things a person can do is to go against their tribe. Following the historic Orthodox movement of Jesus will, at times, force me into agreement with people I'd rather not agree with and put me at odds with those expecting my solidarity. A couple of weeks ago, I got a letter from someone who sent me a link to a Reddit discussion in which one user was pleading with other users to swear off listening to music that I'd made in the past because nowadays I was, and I quote this uh, person on Reddit, towing the evangelical line on sexuality in particular. Meaning, I agree with Jesus in the Bible about human sexuality and thus disagree with evolving progressive ideologies on those same topics. And this person sending this email to me, showing me this link, pleaded with, pleaded with me, tell me this isn't true. Come on, they said, you, you know, punk rock and all that. Tell me that you aren't towing the evangelical line. And though I doubt anyone who's ever heard me ramble on at length would ever accuse me of towing any evangelical line. <laughs> This was the line being drawn in the sand. If you do this, you're with them. If you don't, you're with me. The expectations, the tribe, are you with us or are you with them? And I had to say, I'm with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. If it puts me at odds with anything else, I am with him. So what does it mean to embrace the truth? The swinging pendulum means that there was a time when the church was trying to dig itself out of a hole of its own digging see we had done a lot of rebuking and correcting without a lot of encouragement or patience or grace and so some of us were kind of scrambling up out of the wreckage burdened with damage control and we wanted to tell the world no we christians are not all hyper political judgmental mean-spirited fundamentalists please believe us we're not like that which was good Necessary, even. But then we wandered in a haze, so worried about becoming the previous generation of fundamentalists that we didn't realize it was already happening to us. And the effort to rectify became a passivity, became eventually militarism on the other side of the theological spectrum. And we went from domineering doomed prophets, imposing our own morality and political power on people who don't even follow Jesus in the first place, to people content with leaving everyone to their own truth, you decide, whatever, to people, again, imposing our new morality and political power on everything else all over again, just on the other side of the aisle. And I get it. It's a difficult paradox in which to live. And here's what I mean. Look at this passage from 1 Corinthians in which Paul is dealing specifically with an issue of sexual immorality within the church in Corinth. He writes this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or non-Christians or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, meaning a fellow Christian, someone in your community, but who is also sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So Paul is saying, look, deal with your own stuff. Don't worry about what people who aren't even Christians are doing with their sexuality or their money or their morals or their words or whatever. Worry about the church, your brothers and sisters, those who profess the same identity in Jesus. Now, this is obviously a passage that somehow fell out of every politicized American conservative Christian Bible in the country. I don't know when or how it happened. They all got raptured right out of that book. (laughs) And they can't find it. But but the pendulum swung, and some people wanted to do better. They wanted to recapture Paul's vision of an unimposing and gentle spirited Christianity that did not judge those outside the church, and not judging those outside the church became a new and fluid and subjective truth. But, and here's the paradox. The truth continues to be true for the whole world, whether we're nice or mean or something else. Meaning, for those of us who follow Jesus, God is God over all creation. And God's vision for human flourishing, for peace and justice and goodness, is, we believe, best for all people always. And that means, brace yourself, it would be best if all people embraced the truth of Jesus. It would be best if people of other faiths renounced their gods and embraced the one true God revealed in Jesus. If people of other ideologies and lifestyles brought all that they are into submission before Jesus, the King, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God the Father. And that puts us in the strange and conflicting position to look out on a world so badly bent away from the truth of Jesus and want, hope, and pray that his goodness and truth would be made manifest in every facet of the created order in every man, woman, and child while simultaneously resigning ourselves to peaceful, quiet lives in which the truth of Jesus is open to everyone but imposed on no one. So, instead, we invite. With our lives and with our words, we invite. And we embrace the truth with our lives. We learn to operate within the life-giving bounds of orthodoxy and the truth of Jesus. And then, once there, how do we stay orthodox? I began this series by arguing... That reading the Bible and working out doctrine requires entire communities of men and women, young and old, all over the world, dedicated to God's authority, vested in the Bible and to pondering what it says and working out what it means together, never in isolation. And I want to end this series on that same note. There's a kind of theory and science to orthodoxy, much in the same way. The point I made early on, that doctors have the medical community. If someone within the medical community comes along suddenly arguing, hey, I have discovered the cure for the common cold, the rest of the medical community will appropriately respond by asking, great, what is it? Show us your research. Let us read and test it. Let us see how it harmonizes or deviates from the research of others who have come before you and what we know to be true already scientifically. And if this bold new take turns out to be bleach, drink bleach, this young doctor argues, and that will cure the common cold. Now, maybe this rogue scientist will say, look, forget the research forget what we know, forget what we've been saying all the years about, you know, drinking bleach is bad for you. Times have changed. People really want a cure for the common cold. They don't want to endure another day in so sad and archaic world that has no remedy for this very basic ailment. The people have spoken. We all really, really feel like bleach should be considered a cure. So let's be on the right side of history with this one and just go forward. Well, if the scientific community is operating within, you know, their rights and their decent headspace, they should, in theory, be prepared to reject the bleach drinking treatment as not only false, but as dangerous and potentially deadly, even if a lot of people really, really want bleach to cure the common cold, even if it feels right for them, even if the healing powers of bleach would put them, quote, on the right side of history. If it's not true, it just isn't True. This is exactly how the church applies the community rule to understanding the scriptures. This is how we have established and maintained orthodoxy for centuries. Of course, like the medical community, we can and have and do make mistakes. It isn't perfect but it is crucial and necessary to bring the minds of countless women and men from all over the world and across many traditions and backgrounds and walks of life across centuries to bear on how we understand what the Bible intends to teach. This diverse collection of minds becomes an ongoing effort to guard against misinterpretation and false teaching and abuse and death. It protects us from being led astray to that which is destructive and deadly. And there are dimensions to the process. Bear with me. I want to explain just a little bit of this before we end tonight. I think that it's helpful. Theology is complicated. And the truth is is that every year we learn a little bit more from scholarship, from language, from history, from archaeology, about the world of the Bible so far, nothing that changes anything monumental within the core doctrines of Christianity, but there are times when a new understanding of some concept or even a word or passage surfaces. So, as it is in the scientific community, the new idea, the one that deviates, be it you know, slightly or significantly from history or tradition or the majority view, it goes into a period of testing or peer review, if you like. And there will be things that will probably bore the average Christian or that they'll never even hear about. But experts will debate within the academy. There will be scholarly articles and entire books published back and forth, point, counterpoint. In fact, back in the early 2000s, panel of professors and pastors and scholars called the Evangelical Theological Society. This is before evangelical was quite so terrible a word, but the Evangelical Theological Society, they came together to spend days debating a theological position on how God's foreknowledge works, which all sounds very dry and clinical, I know, and yes, it can and does devolve from time to time into hopeless semantics and smarty-pants tribalism or whatever, But that's not all of it. There are sincere, humble women and men committed to the way of Jesus who want badly to love God with their minds and maintain an uncompromising commitment to the truth. And not only that, they want to help protect people, the people of God, from false teaching and from that which leads to death and destruction, just as Paul warned throughout the New Testament again and again and again. So they write and they think and they debate and they reason. And sometimes a once disputed way of seeing things is folded into orthodoxy with caveats, like, well, just so you know, this is a minority position, or, you know, this is new, or this is still being disputed. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's heretical false teaching and leads to death, but maybe there's still a level of contention here. This is being debated. But then there are other new or disputed views that endure the period of debate And like someone arguing that bleach cures the common cold, the view just experiences uniform rejection. And that's been happening since the beginning of the church all the way up until today. But these rejected false teachings often live on amongst jaded, post-Christian, usually social media accounts and podcasters, almost always those reacting to or hurt by their fundamentalist environments and upbringing, who usually... Give up on any argument rooted in the Bible or theology and imp- appeal instead to feelings or cultural consensus. It can't be that God ever gets angry because that would hurt my feelings, or it can't be that it can't be that pornography is a destructive injustice, a blight on the world because I want to do it and I don't like when someone tells me that I can't do what I want to do. So to end, how do we do this? How do you know which is which? Must everyone go to seminary or join a theological society? I don't even know how. And what about the family member at Thanksgiving? You know you know the one, or at least I do. <laughs> don't worry, they won't hear this. Um, the family member at Thanksgiving saying things like, man, these liberals are out here ignoring the Bible's clear teaching, and they are <gasps> letting the women teach. Something like that, you know? And you're like, no, Uncle Roy. They've been, (laughs) I don't really have an Uncle Roy. You're like, no, Uncle Roy, they've been doing that since the New Testament. And Uncle Roy says, well, in my day, we actually cared about the Bible. And you're like, no, Uncle Roy. In your day, the church was legally segregated. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't care about the Bible. How do we tell the Uncle Roys from the legitimate concern for true orthodoxy? Because they often sound, quite frankly, the same. I'm up here saying, all these people don't care about the Bible. Uncle Roy is up here saying, these well, boys. not up here. <laughs> <laughs> that I know of. Um, how do you know? How can we distinguish debated but accepted views from embittered podcasters with hurt feelings or antiquated fundamentalists? Honestly, it's actually not that hard. First, you start with, surprise, surprise, Jesus and the scriptures. Actually read what Jesus teaches. Read the Bible to which Jesus was so deeply committed. There are more accessible resources than there have ever been to incredible and helpful biblical scholarship. The Bible Project, for God's sake, is right there on the internet. They have an app and a podcast and the YouTube channel, all of which is incredible, amazing. It's some of the very best biblical scholarship packaged in something so artistically credible and aesthetically excellent that you you can hardly believe it was made by Christians. (laughs) Mm. But it was. (laughs) And as you read and as you learn, if there comes an issue, as there often will, in your discipleship to Jesus that is particularly sensitive to you for whatever reason, Especially one wrapped up in emotions or felt cultural pressure, continue to read, continue to learn. And here's where you start my personal recommendation, anyway read someone who disagrees with your theolog- the, the theological position that you badly want to be true. Do not go only to the person telling you what you already want to hear. It's incredible when someone feeds themselves on a steady diet of views with which they already agree, they somehow come away, right or wrong, reinforced in their position. It's the theological equivalent of the Fox News grandpa or the CNN yuppie. Just watch the same thing, saying it right back to you all day long, get really angry about it, and never change your mind on anything. Feelings matter, for sure. But it's not enough to settle complex theological disagreements with, I just really feel like you fill in the blanks. How do you protect yourself from falling into that trap? Jesus and the scriptures and then go to church. Why is it in all the creeds all the way back from the first century up until now, I believe in one holy apostolic church because the church holds us accountable and the church is not a self-affirmation echo chamber. You should expect to disagree, debate, and grow in the process of living in community with other disciples of Jesus. It's incredible to me how increasingly fragile we are becoming. As the shell of hyper-politicization hardens around everything in the known universe, it seems that more and more and more we become incapable of dealing with the reality of different points of view. So we sink further into our self-affirming echo chambers of news and social media and friend groups, Banning and banishing anyone and anything that caused our precious and fragile worldview into question. When I was a kid, this is nothing new, by the way, when I was a kid, it was conservative fundamentalists desperately trying to, you know, smash all the heavy metal CDs or censor gangster rap videos. That was a big concern at the time as well. Can you believe what Snoop Dogg is saying <laughs> in this thing? Real scared. <laughs> My parents, real scared of that one. But today's new, new fundamentalism has crossed the aisle, so to speak. So you have things like, you know, uh, progressive students and universities coming together in their school auditorium to scream over speakers with whom they disagree. Or people who hate art desperately trying to cancel musicians or stand-up comedians. Entire streaming services with whom they disagree. And the effort then is the same as it is now. Hyperbolizing everything to the point of insanity and logic and reason go out the window. If you play this video game, I was told, you will become a murderer. Do not play Doom. (laughs) Those were demons. (laughs) Pretty Christian, actually. Or if you listen to this record, you will sell your soul to the devil. Play it, you have to play it backwards. If you laugh at this satire, then you are doing actual hate crimes and violence against sexual minorities. But the church has absolutely no space for this kind of extreme unthinking tribalism because we are all over the spectrum in what we think, and all of us are coming together to bring all of it into submission before Jesus. And we're in process. A good friend of mine is a pastor of communities at a big church down the road in Portland, and he was telling me that lately they've had this influx of new people demanding to be placed only in communities that are pre-stocked with people who agree with their positions on COVID. So they want Either a fully vaxxed and boosted community who support all preventative lockdown measures and who the pastor can tell them make sure they're all like that, or they only want to be around people who hate masks and refuse to get what they are convinced is, you know, Bill Gates' mark of the beast microchip or whatever. (laughs) And my friend is telling people left and right that are coming in to be placed in communities look, We do not screen people into the church based on their COVID opinions, and if you can't bear to be in a community with someone you're going to disagree with, then you have come to the wrong place. And that wrong place being not just their church, but the church. Did you know that amongst the 12 apostles were both Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot? Matthew, who we know from the gospel story, was a tax collector right beside Simon that is differentiated from the other more famous Simon, no offense, Simon the Zealot, as a zealot. Now, tax collectors were were far right in the Jewish political mind of the ancient world. They worked for Rome. They worked for the oppressor. Zealots, on the other hand, were as far left as you could possibly be. Historical records indicate that zealots loathed tax collectors even more than they loathed Romans. Because tax collectors not only supported the oppressor, they made a living by exploiting their own people for the sake of the oppressor. Zealots were known for violent revolt, stabbing tax collectors, even for assassinating them in a crowd and getting away before anyone knew about it. So this would have been like Jesus inviting, you know, the MAGA hat wearing person with the flags on the pickup truck and everything, come follow me, right alongside an outspoken Antifa sympathizing Portland protester. How utterly incredible it is in context then that both Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot were both somehow drawn to the same Jesus. And they both answered his call to follow alongside one another. And thus, together, leave both of their old ideologies behind for a new one that they shared. Matthew would have learned under his master a way of life that would render his political worldview untenable, the ways of radical generosity, concern for the poor, that it's better to give things away than to keep them for yourself. And Simon, he would have had to learn about a new way of life that would cost him the old one, about enemy love and nonviolence, reconciliation, forgiveness. On this bizarre choice of disciples, theologian Greg Boyd writes this, we never find a word in the Gospels about their different political opinions. Indeed, we never read a word about what Jesus thought about their radically different kingdom of the world views. What this silence suggests is that in following Jesus, Matthew and Simon had something in common that dwarfed their individual political differences and significance as extreme as these differences were. The silence points to the all-important distinctness of the kingdom of God from every version of the kingdom of the world. While Jesus never sided with any of the limited and divisive kingdom of the world options routinely set before him, the church, by and large today, swallows them hook, line, and sinker. What was it that enabled Jesus and his followers to exist in a politically divided world and not only coexist, but collaborate with their worst enemies without shunning and shaming and hating and silencing them. The foundation of orthodoxy to which they had both come to believe was enough to call everything else into question. Because, newsflash, we're all screwed up. And in theory, when we're really here faithfully here, then we stand to grow and learn from one another as we operate in sincere vulnerability and accountability. And the church, get this, is very, very old. Orthodoxy reaches backward and forward in time. We can and should draw on the rich well of knowledge and wisdom and learn from the mistakes made by disciples of Jesus who have gone before us. And that's good news because it means that we're not doing this by ourselves. And in all of it, we are seeking and submitting to the will of God revealed to us in the Scriptures by His Spirit, alive and speaking in us and in the family of God and through the accountability of the community. And if we give that a shot, following Jesus faithfully, our lives open to the Spirit, open to the vulnerability of community, correction and rebuke, our hearts and minds open to the Spirit of God, His Word, His correction and rebuke, then our orthodoxy can remain uncompromising, in and out of season, keeping our heads in all situations, enduring hardship, doing the work of the evangelists, discharging all the duties of our ministry. Let's pray and ask God that it would be so. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Van City financially at vancitychurch/give.